This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programs or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. The writer J.R.R. Tolkien once described his spellbinding novel, The Lord of the Rings, as fundamentally a religious and Catholic work. But was Tolkien a moralistic writer? And how did his robust faith and spiritual vision shape his fiction? Hello, good morning, and you're very welcome to Talking Books with me, Susan Cahill. Well, this morning's show looks at some of the big philosophical questions in life. Good versus evil, lightness and darkness, and the liminal spaces in between. Today's show focuses on belief and creativity, magic and mystery, love and longing. Irish-Canadian writer O'War Melling discusses voyaging, Doris Lessing and the poetic license of mysticism and with the recent publication of Tolkien, The Forest and the City by Four Courts Press, we look at the enduring appeal of this great British writer. I've read and reread Tolkien every year since 1967. One of the reasons why I became an Anglo-Saxonist was because of Tolkien, because I fell in love with the world behind his world. Tolkien does this. Tolkien changes people's lives. I became an academic because of Tolkien. I read him when I was 12. I wanted to study this this material. People become artists because of Tolkien. People write music because of Tolkien. People write novels because of Tolkien. When you've read Tolkien, you begin to realise you escape nothing in Tolkien. He is an incredibly dark writer. He is an incredibly humane writer. He is interested in the problems of humanity. He's not a philosopher, he's not a theologian, but he works on the same problems. But he does it the way his brain works, which is as a storyteller. When we talk about morals, Tolkien is not C.S. Lewis. He's not Spencer. He doesn't tell you how you should read a passage. He doesn't tell you what you have to believe, but he constantly forces you to look at situations. And he's honest. He'll tell you what he thinks is right. But first, the fantasy writer O.R. Melling was born in Ireland, but grew up in Canada. She has written several books for children and for adults and has been published worldwide and translated into numerous languages. Awara spent the bulk of her very colourful and interesting life travelling to the most unusual and far-off places, the Gobi Desert and out to Mongolia, to name but a few. Her latest work of fiction, People of the Great Journey, is set on a remote Scottish island in the Outer Hebrides and tells the story of a woman on an intense spiritual journey. It's quite a read. Well, I met up with Awara a few weeks ago and had a very soulful chat about dreams symbols, the psyche and the infinite spirit of life. Hello, my name's O.R. Melling. I'm the author of People of the Great Journey. My book is set in the Outer Hebrides. My main character, Owen Mallory, is a 49-year-old writer of fairy tales who's been invited to um, on a week-long retreat in a big house called Dunsford House. Uh, when she arrives there, she finds herself part of an international circle of people, all with different stories, all with different backgrounds. The retreat itself involves during the day visionary and mystical 
alternative practices such as the Celtic Sweat House, mythic journeying, deep breath work, soul retrieval. What's happening at night then is Alwyn's having strange dreams and visions to the point where she she loses all track of what's real and what isn't. The core question in the book is um, all these people have suffered some form of trauma and are on this retreat doing these practices to help them come to some point of healing. I would describe it as work as speculative fiction or as Doris Lessing calls it, inner space fiction. Can I start off asking you about magic and how do you define magic? Because magic is a huge component in this wonderful book. I think I'd probably prefer the word mysticism rather than magic. I'm just thinking when I was a child, I hated magicians. I would have read books that I did call magic books. But in fact, they were books by, say, C.S. Lewis or P.L. Travers and J.M. Barry. And, and really, magic was almost like a cheap word for what was going on. And, and mysticism being a bigger word, which I didn't know as a child, I think is more appropriate to describe that stream of literature that I preferred as a child. And then which I think this belongs to um, as an adult. And at the start of the book, you've quoted some very revered thinkers, mystics and philosophers. And ones that jump out to me are Doris Lessing, John Moriarty and also Anthony DeMello. Can you talk to me why you felt it was necessary to start a book with these setting the context, so to speak? Oh, yeah, I suppose there'd be two reasons, the high one and the low one. This is to set my book in a uh, classical tradition. I wanted to put it in that tradition of inner exploration, again, mystical philosophy. That would be uh, C.S. Lewis. John Moriarty is walking that fine line between uh, mysticism and madness. Doris Lessing, because she coined her own term, um, inner space fiction which critics for some reason have reduced to space fiction. But she called it inner space fiction. And she said there is for there is never anywhere to go but in. And um, she used that. She explored all kinds of things um, in memoirs of a survivor. Um, she said it was semi-autobiographical, the closest thing she got to autobiography before she actually wrote her autobiography. Um, she used, then had the Canopus series, which allowed her to go out into the universe which some people call science fiction fantasy, but but you can't because she was dealing with very deep philosophical and political issues and even questions of where humanity is going. And I suppose I think I'm raising those issues in my book as well. My core interest is the reason for suffering in the planet and, and human suffering and um, and the healing of that. But it's also taken in the bigger context, philosophical, religious, spiritual context of its role in, in life itself. And you know, as I said to you earlier, it all had to do with the really big questions of what on earth are we doing here? What is going on here? Why are we walking around on this planet? What is going on? Where did humanity come from? Where are we going? Carl Jung said we're caught between two mysteries, where we came from and where we're going. But I would say there's three mysteries. And the third one's the one in the middle. What on earth are we doing here? What What is going on here? Because it is still a mystery to, to all of us. And the book is set in the Outer Hebrides. It's quite a remote part. Isn't it? It's the main islands off Scotland. They have their own traditions and their there is a huge spirituality to the Outer Hebrides. Can you talk to me about this? I think the main reason I, I chose the Outer Hebrides, I'd, I was always working these themes. I was always trying to figure out a container for the book. At one point I had set it in Ireland, actually, uh, because Ireland has that, you know, Celtic twilight you know, borderline between two worlds aspect to it historically and mythically and I think in real terms uh, the, the spiritual life of the people here. But um, I then went on a tour of northern Scotland with a friend of mine, um, Dr. Nana Hardy, who's, uh, who died a couple of years ago, and um, 
who actually features then as a minor character at the beginning, at the end of the book. When I was traveling through the Outer Hebrides and, and the discovery of the Callanish Stones, it was all suddenly I realized, oh, no, this is this is the setting. And uh, the fact that it is the edge of the known world, certainly, uh, and, and far, you know, in that sense, much wilder than Ireland, although it's pretty wild parts of Ireland if I put it up in Donegal or whatever. But... Um, yeah, it was incredibly even a wilder landscape than Ireland. And then the Callanish Stones, this huge megalith that uh, served then as the for the climactic scene. Can you talk to me about some of the critical themes that you're bringing up in your book in relation to voyaging and journeying and shamanism and all the spirituality that goes with that? Okay, so first thing to explain some of the... Um, some of the practices, some would would go under the general term of of new age and shamanism, as you say, which, of course, we have to be really careful of because there's a whole element of fraudster snake oil merchant Mm. stuff going on in that direction, you know, you know, basically taking money from the vulnerable, you know, promising the sun, moon and stars. But uh, but on the other hand, there are these techniques, uh, what Mercia Elliott called the archaic techniques of ecstasy, which are, in fact, ancient techniques used by religions and societies or old, old societies um, to bring people into to altered states. And of course, the New Age has has latched on to to a lot of these. And then you have the breathwork, which is mm. actually something separate. It's um holotropic breathwork. I don't call it that. I call it breathwork because I've done my own sort of version of it. But holotropic breathwork, which I would have experimented with, was invented by Czech uh, psychiatrist, Dr. Stanislav Grof, who uh, worked with Aldous Huxley and Hoffman, the inventor of LSD way back uh, in the 60s, I think. Stan um, developed with his wife, Christina, um, this method of deep, uh, deep breathwork combined with um, trance music and then bodywork afterwards to end enter into those states. You know, they're deep healing practices. And you're right, they're not for the faint hearted. But presumably in researching the book, you sourced your own animal guides as the lead character does in the book. You went and experienced all these sweat lodges and all the different components of the treatments that take shape in the narrative of your new book. Yes, I would have I would have done all that for two reasons. One for research for the novel, but also as part of my own spiritual path and, and explorations. Um, I'd, I'd quote my, my character, Dr. Jack. He said, um, no, he's too old to do drugs. So mm. he does these to enter it into ec- ecstatic states. So, And there are lighter chapters in the book, like Sex and Chocolate, which shows you just how intense things can get on a retreat. But I'm wondering, what have you learned as a writer by delving into all of this stuff? Oh, I would say um, I learnt all the stuff before I wrote it. So um, the writing of it is more the aftermath. But just to go back to the sex and chocolate chapter, one one of the things I say my book, uh, there's a lot of books mentioned in the book. And of course, Steppenwolf, uh, one of my favourite books, is mentioned. But while I loved Herman Hesse's work, mystical literature, I suppose, as well, he lacked humour. I think yes. that's one of the things. He's just, it, was, it was extremely um, serious and earnest. And I think it was really important to me, even though I'm dealing with such uh, big subjects and and then some um, really hard subjects like like pedophilia, sexual abuse, um, rape, 
at the, and violence that that I'm also I think very much I mean my my main character just makes me laugh a lot of the time she's a, she's a chocoholic so um, so that's one of the reasons she has the sex and chocolate uh, fantasy but um, I think humor is extremely important it's mm-hmm. certainly one of the things that both saves us as a race and uh, saves anyone who's who um, does suffer, as we all do. And I think one of my other characters says that, Elsie. Um, she says, there's no one here who hasn't suffered. There is no one on this planet who hasn't suffered. That's, it's just a simple, undeniable and inevitable fact of life. Can I ask you about one of the characters who I found quite interesting? Ooh. It's a character of Rose. <clears throat> and Rose is a man. And Rose is a kind of a, he's quite a kind of a daunting presence, but is deeply engaging all the same. Mm. So can you tell me about him and how real are the Rose characters in life? There's a novel that I had begun work on before this, which is about Rose. And that's his last name shortened. His name is Rosenthal. And so and he ended up being uh, the director in this, um, in this retreat that my main character, Owen, uh, goes on. And, uh, and so he's both, uh, he has in that sense then a history of violence. I'd always been aware of these... Um, these groups from either books or things, I don't know, stories that came my way. And then I always wondered about the survival of the, the victims. It's like I was always aware that these two streams are so strangely um, yeah, braided together within human life, these, these depths of depravity and then in these um, spiritual revelations, you know. And there's another story, I remember, too. There was a, an Irish soldier who murdered a woman here in... Ireland and he he told the story of how just before he killed her her face changed and she told him to save himself she expressed this love towards him so she she hooked in the moments of her death into the greater the great I think the greater truth the greater reality but he wasn't able to respond to it and then I I put that story in that Rose did respond in that in that moment to to the greater story that uh, the greater thing that he was um so yeah i suppose because throughout my life there have been different elements that have interested me and stories that i've heard and remembered and it's almost like they all kept coming together to attach themselves to this to this character, Rose. Can we talk a little bit about trauma? Because the stories in the book, the different participants on the course have all suffered, as you said, and they're all there for specific reasons in order to release themselves from their trauma or to set themselves free in some way. Yeah, there's a few things there. I mean, I have to say there were parts of this book that even when I was writing it, I was being traumatised. You know, I mean, when I'm writing specifically Rose's story and no matter how many times I've come back to his story, I end up shaking and crying. Um, even when I come back to correct the grammar or whatever, I'm, I'm not actually able to separate from it. I find his, his uh, story extremely painful. And I was concerned at one point, and I had discussed with my publishers, I had discussed with them at one point whether we should be putting something in at the end, the way they do on television programs, you know, after the song for Raggedy Boy or whatever, they put... They actually put uh, helplines or whatever. And, but then I thought, that's, that's just taking myself too seriously at the same time, and that this is a novel, and it's an adult novel, so people reading it. But again, then it came back to me, you know, um, would I be traumatizing people? Or I mean, I had some one of my younger readers, I mean, she's in her 20s, young poet, said she had nightmares for a long time after reading it. And uh, But then one of my reviewers on Amazon, she 
she warned people who have been raped or who have suffered abuse that the book could bring up strong uh, feelings about it, but to continue reading because she felt there were answers and there was help. There was help there and that she said she herself got help from that and, and uh, ideas of where she could go next. So so I felt, you know, uh, I felt that uh, that was good to know. I was reassured with that because, I mean, on the one hand, you can say, look, it's a novel. It's sent out, I've sent it out into the world. But, but, but actually, writers must take responsibility for what they write. We, we are responsible for what we write. And we can't just say, that's a story, leave it over there. But, the, but there's another thing, too, I would say about that and, and the reason I, I wrote this book. I mean, my books before this were chiefly for young adults. And I used to get, I still do from time to time, letters. I used to get now emails from young people who had read my books and they would tell me that the books helped them through their parents' divorce or uh, a sibling dying. And um, I remember one lovely story, a girl had written to me um, from Canada that uh, she never knew her dad, but her mom told her that he came from Straban in Ireland and that she felt when she read my book, she was close to her father. And, you know, so you get these heartbreaking uh, letters and emails from, from young people because even my, my young adult books would have this um, core of soul stuff, I call it. And uh, and then the, the point of writing this book was while I was trying to struggle with the questions of, you know, the questions of suffering and the reality of evil in our world, um, I also was in, in finding some relief for myself, some... Uh, understanding of it for myself and then I hoped that the story would also offer that to others. And what have you learned by writing the book? Because it's a very extraordinary book, it's very powerfully written, the characters are very strong and the messages in it are hugely interesting, a bit scary at times and you certainly go to the most extraordinary of places. What I learned in the writing of it, and I said but it took, it, it actually did take years to write and, and there were times when I swear to God, I thought, this is too big a story. I do not have the um, skills to write it. And then there are other times when I kept thinking, who the hell would want to read this? But yeah, so there were two, the two big things for me in the writing of this book was trying to find the skill to be actually able to write it. And uh, I am actually pleased. I have to say I'm, I'm, I'm happier with this book than any other I, I've written so far. So I am pleased. I think it's fairly good.
And that was Elwar Melling talking to me about her new book, People of the Great Journey. And ending the interview was a very curious music of Icelandic composer Johan Johansson. I hope you liked it. I thought it kind of worked. Okay, coming up next, we're going to go into the enchanting world of J.R.R. Tolkien. I cannot wait. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Susan Cahill. 